Take your Bibles, if you don't mind, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, we're going to start in verse 10 today. Now, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We got you covered. We'll make sure you get one to follow along. We are in a series, as you know, entitled Fearless. Uh, our word for the year and what we've looked at in this series are a series of uh, individual issues and topics about which we often have fear. And we ask the question, how can I respond biblically to this particular fear? Now, today, we're not going to be looking at a specific fear that we have. We're going to be talking about a mindset that we all enter into. Uh, and, and we need to enter into this to be victorious and to be fearless each and every day. Does that sound like something you could use in your life? All right, well, let's do this. I want to ask you to stand with me. We have a lot of ground to cover, so let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here today together, Lord, and we just ask that you would move through your word today. God, we are so grateful that when we put our faith in you, that you give us a new family. You give us a new hope. You give us a new life, a new heart. Lord, you give us a new name because we have the name of Christ now, and we live according to that name, but we also have a new reality. We who are now called by your name, we have an enemy who has us in his crosshairs, who's painted a big old bullseye on us, and God, I pray that today through your word, you can show us how we can respond to that reality and how we can live fearlessly and victoriously in spite of that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Perhaps nothing has evoked more fear in the hearts of men throughout our history than the specter and the reality of war. And in my 45 years, I've seen many wars come and go that America has been involved in. And fortunately, I have been blessed to not have to have put my life on the line. I've never set foot on a battlefield anywhere. I've never been at risk of, of that. I have nothing but gratitude and the utmost respect for the men and women who, who serve in our armed forces, who, who lay their lives on the line in the cause of freedom for you and I. But like many of you, the only experience I've ever had, the only exposure to what battle must be like is on the big screen. And although movies can't possibly do 100% justice to the reality of war and all the horrors of that and what that's really like, there does seem to be a consensus about one movie in particular that has really set the standard in terms of authenticity of warfare. And I'll never forget the first time I sat in a theater and I watched the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan. You may remember that opening scene as Steven Spielberg does a masterful job transporting the viewer into the center of a packed Higgins boat filled with soldiers like sardines speeding along with other countless other crafts toward Omaha Beach on June the 6th, 1944. And as we're there in that Higgins boat, we look and we see the fear. We see the trembling in the hands of those soldiers as they fumble with their canteens, with their, with their rifles. And we see the, the frightened eyes and we see the cold sweat. And we see soldiers literally vomiting in anticipation of what awaits them on that beach. And we hear the roar of the diesel engines of that Higgins boat. And we hear the, the shouting of the boat pilot over the waves as he says, 30 seconds to shore and may God be with you boat hits that beach, a bow ramp drops, 
The fears of those men are confirmed as bullets, a hail of bullets rips through the first three, four rows of men and their blood spatters and those diesel engines are now drowned out by the booming, deafening sounds of warfare. And it's out of sheer survival instincts that these soldiers plunge off the side of that craft into the water where they submerge and where for just a moment, sounds of battle are muted. Although many of those soldiers are nonetheless cut to ribbons by bullets that zip through the water and find their target, leaving behind red trails. And those fortunate enough to fight their way back toward the sunlight to air. They break the surface of the water and they encounter the unfolding horror that's seen on the beach as mortars fall and sand erupts like geysers and they are knocked from their feet and they, they struggle back to their feet and they, 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 they strive to comprehend what their eyes are seeing, that their very own friends, their fellow soldiers are being blown apart, engulfed in flames. And there's the relentless rat-a-tat-tat of the machine gun nests in the concrete bunkers overlooking that beach. It's horrific. And yet in spite of all of that, in spite of their fears, those boys press on and they win the day. And if this is Hollywood, what must D-Day really have been like? There's only one word to describe it. It's been said that war is hell. But it's the Apostle Paul who wants us to know today that it is in fact hell that is at war with us. Because he wants you to know that no matter what your life experience, whether you've served uh, many years or a day or no time at all in the armed forces, you as a Christian are presently engaged in spiritual warfare. And here's the big opening sentence for you in your notes. The Christian life is a battle, and Ephesians 6 is the battle plan. You need a battle plan when you go into battle. And what Paul wants us to know is that the war that we are engaged in now, unlike all of the human wars throughout history, this war has an ending that has already been determined. We've already won. And what we are experiencing on a daily basis is not the war, it's the skirmishes, it's the, it's the individual battles that have repercussions for the here and the now. But Paul says you, as a soldier of Christ, can enter into that conflict. You can set foot on those battlefields with total confidence and with total fearlessness. And gives us four things we can be fearless about today as believers. And in your notes, first of all, as believers, we can be fearless about our command. Our command. A good soldier follows commands. But you can only follow a command if you know what it is. And so Paul starts off with a very clear command. In verse 10, he says, finally, be strong. Be strong. We got to be strong. That's an imperative. We are to be strong. Why do we need to be strong? We're going into battle. It's time to be strong. Can't be weak. Got to be brave. Now, fortunately, there's no period after the word strong there. I am very, very grateful for that. Why? <laughs> because you and I are not strong. We are weak. And Paul knows this. And so he doesn't put a period there. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so in your notes, our source of strength is in the Lord and his power. Are you glad about that? Amen. You are not going to win a single battle because of you. 
Okay? God does not ask us to do things that he does not give us the means to do them with. Jesus knew this in the upper room with his disciples. Uh, as he shared that last supper with them, he said, if you love me, keep my commands. And those disciples looked at him and gulped hard and thought, uh-oh. Lord, I love you, but I, 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 I don't know if I can keep your commands. I don't know if I'm strong enough. And Jesus is looking at them, and he's thinking the exact same thing. He's thinking, yeah, boys, I've seen your work. I know. I know you're weak. And so he goes on immediately, and he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will send you another, the Holy Spirit. That way you can keep my commands because you'll have a source of strength that is not your own. And so that's what we can be fearless about is that our source of strength is in the Lord. We can secondly be fearless about our enemy. We can be fearless about our enemy. Let me tell you, if you go into battle, you better know who your enemy is. You need to define the enemy. And Paul defines the enemy for us in verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God, we're going to talk about that, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. You have an enemy and your enemy is the devil. Now listen to me. This is not a metaphor. Okay? This is not a symbol of something. When we say the devil, we're not talking about a euphemism for some world system, some general vague uh, form of evil. This is a person. This is an individual being. He has a personality. He has a name. Now the name that he goes by today is not the name that he was given when he was created. And he was created. He was created by God the Father. And when he was created, he was not the devil. He was an angel. He was the greatest of all angels. He was the mightiest, the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most perfect of all angels in heaven. And his name in the Latin was Lucifer. And Lucifer means light bearer. In the Hebrew, his name was Helel, which is a variation of another Hebrew word that connotates worship, that, that basically says boast in the Lord. And his job, as near as we could tell, was to be the worship leader of heaven to lead all the other angels in heaven in worship of God until one day his worship shifted from being about God to being about himself. And he said, I will be like the Most High. And God said, no, you will not. And he was removed from God's presence. He was kicked out of heaven. And in that moment, he was corrupted and his name changed. His name was no longer Lucifer or Halel. His name became Satan. And Satan literally means adversary. Who is your adversary? It's right there in his name. Satan. That's your adversary. All right? That is your enemy. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 11 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Someone, anyone, anyone else that God made, he wants to eat you alive. He wants to hurt God because he hates God. And therefore, he hates God's creation, and he wants to hurt God by hurting you. How does he do that? Let's talk about his tactics. Paul says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Satan is a schemer. He is a liar, a deceiver. He is manipulative. He is conniving. He concocts strategies to come at you. He does not fight fair. He does not fight by conventional warfare tactics. He does not just simply line up and march in unison until you see the whites of his eyes. No, he launches guerrilla warfare against you. Surprise attacks. How? I want you to think about your greatest temptations. What are they? 
What's your biggest temptation? Is it, is it money? Is it lust? Is it power? Is it food? Fame? What is it? Now, do you think that Satan knows what it is? You better believe he does. He is highly intelligent, and he will throw whatever he needs to at you to get you to fail, to stumble, and to be miserable. Because if you're a Christian, he knows he cannot have your soul. And so he's going to come after you, and he's going to mess up your life. He's going to destroy your testimony. He's going to render you spiritually impotent so that you cannot be persuasive and lead other people to Jesus Christ. That's the enemy that you face. What is his nature? In verse 12, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. His nature is not a flesh and blood nature. He's not physical. He was what? An angel, meaning he's not physical. He's spiritual. He is a spirit, right? And so we're not going to be able to combat him with physical means. We can't come at him with conventional weaponry. We got to use spiritual weaponry. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But he's an angel. And when he was removed from heaven, he convinced one-third of all the other angels of heaven to go with him. That's how good he is at deception. He is brilliant at deception. He convinced a third of all the angels that God created to come with him. That speaks to his organization. Paul says that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. So we've got this guy called the devil. Now we learn about rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. He's organized. He has a force, a demonic force. Now, our military forces have rank and class. We've got generals, we've got majors, we've got lieutenants, we've got sergeants, all of that. Satan's got that too. That's what rulers and authorities is all about, those terms right there. He's organized. Righteous angels have the same type of rank and class. Demons have the same type of rank and class. And they do the bidding of their master, of their commander, Satan. And we see this phrase, world uh, cosmic powers. That sounds a little sci-fi, doesn't it? Sounds like it comes out of Guardians of the Galaxy right there. Cosmic powers is in the Greek, uh, kosmokratis, which is uh, world powers, quite literally. And it speaks to his areas of operation. Where is Satan active right now? Where does he operate? He operates in the world. And among his demons, he has world powers. And that talks about how throughout history, there is scriptural evidence that Satan controls, manipulates, deceives, and, and instructs human beings who are in positions of influence and power. And they, under his deception, will go forth and perpetrate evil and do his bidding under demonic influence. And we see that in scripture. We, we know that throughout history, Satan has had a geographical uh, base of operations on the earth. Even though he is spirit, he has operated from a physical place on the earth. Book of Revelation talks about Pergamum. And in the letter to Pergamum, uh, the Lord says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Right? And all throughout history, this has been the case. I can imagine at some point Satan's headquarters was in Rome. I can imagine at some point it was in Berlin, perhaps in the 40s. And at one point uh, in the future, there will be a world leader called the Antichrist whom Satan will control personally and he will be the most evil man who ever walked the earth and he will be under demonic influence. Where is Satan 
headquartered at today? I don't have any idea. I know there are probably a couple of offices on Capitol Hill that are rather busy. I don't know. Who's to say? Who's to say? But he is in the world. He is active right here. You say, well, what about hell? I thought he was just down in hell. And I think a lot of people have that imagery that Satan's just hanging out. Like he's, hell is just, you know, Satan's crib. And he's just down there chilling. Look, Satan doesn't want to be in hell any more than you want to be in hell. Hell is a place of suffering and of judgment. And he does not want, he's not there now. He is on the earth. He is walking to and fro on the earth. That's what the book of Job says. But you know where else he is? He's not only in what Paul calls this present darkness. He is also in the heavenly places. He says we wrestle against the forces of evil in the heavenly places. You say, I thought he got kicked out of heaven. He did in the sense that he may no longer have his dwelling in, in, in the presence of God. He may not abide there, but he apparently can come and go into the presence of God in the heavenlies. You say, what's he, what's he doing in heaven? He is accusing you and I before God. In the book of Job, the angels come to present themselves before God, says that Satan comes with them. What is he doing there? He's trashing Job. He's trashing God's servant Job. What's he doing right now? He's trashing you. God, did you see what so-and-so did? And you called them your child. Are you kidding me? Did you see what they did? Did you see what she said? I'd be disappointed in them, God, if I were you. In fact, I'd, I'd let me have them. Why don't you just let me have them? This is his M.O. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. He's an accuser. That's the enemy that we have. How do you fight an enemy like that. And why do you tell me all this, Scott? You trying to freak me out? No, I don't want you to be fearful. I want you to be aware. You need to be aware. The greatest strategy I could have if I were Satan is to convince the world that I don't exist. And my goal here is not that you walk out these doors and look for a demon behind every corner, okay? I don't want you, everybody that looks sideways at you is not demon possessed. So don't go try to exercise the demons and your mother-in-law or anything like that, okay? <laughs> You just need to be aware of your enemy. Now, how do we fight this enemy? We have equipment. We can be fearless about our equipment. You need spiritual weapons to fight a spiritual enemy. Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. You need to be dressed for the right job. Okay, when I was in high school, I had an opportunity to go for one day and work on a farm and bale hay. And so I'd never done anything like that, but I was looking forward to making a little money. I checked the weather. It was going to be really, really hot. And so I put on a t-shirt, pair of shorts. Yeah, I am that stupid. That's right. And my dad found me, thank God, and he comes to me and he goes, uh, son, what, 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 what are you doing? I said, well, I'm, I'm getting ready to go work on the farm. He goes, no, 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 you're not. Not dressed like that. You're going to wear a long sleeve shirt, find an old pair of jeans, and here's some gloves that you can wear. I go, Dad, are you kidding me? It's going to be a scorcher out there today. He's like, son, you'll thank me later. So I did what he said. I went out. My buddies stopped at the house. They picked me up. They laughed at me on our way to the farm because of how I was dressed. They're like, dude, you're going to die. It's so hot out there today. And we get out there, and they were dressed in short sleeves and shorts. One of them, I think, had a tank top on. And we get there, we find out, we're not just baling hay, we're baling oats. Anybody ever baled oats before? It's got these little seeds in there, and they're hard and sharp. And my friend in the tank top was standing on a couple of stacks of uh, hay bales, oat bales. He fell down in between the bales. 
And we had to fish him out of there. And he had red streaks all up and down his butt. They weren't laughing at me anymore after that. And on day two, they had long sleeves and long pants. You got to dress for the job. So you need the armor of God in order to fight Satan. Okay, now, Paul uh, is concerned with this armor. He says, take up the armor of God, meaning, here's the armor. I'm going to provide you the armor. Now, God says, take it up. I'm not going to put it on you. You got to take it up. You got to put it on. And Paul is concerned with the evil day. Okay, the evil day, right? He's divided the armor up into two sections here. Uh, The first, there are three components, and they're prefaced with this verb that means to have. To be, to have, having put on, having fastened. This speaks to the constant state of readiness that we are to be in for battle. We're always at war, and we always have this base armor, okay? The second three components of the armor uh, deal with, uh, they you have the verb take to take, take up, take up the sword, take up the shield, okay? And this is armor that you use on an as-needed basis. You don't use it all the time, but you pull it out when? In the evil day, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What is the evil day? Well, we're always at war, but there, are, there sometimes comes the evil day. And that is when your enemy has you right in his sights, and he says, your number has come up, and today's the day. I am coming at you. I'm going to throw everything I got at you. Uh, full offensive. And you, my friend, are going down. It is in the evil day that the base armor is not enough. You are looking for your devil-slaying weapon. So let's look at this armor that is going to be practical and beneficial for you. We start with the belt of truth. That's the first component to the armor. He says, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. What does a belt do? It holds you together. And in your notes, truth holds us together and keeps us from becoming unstable. Okay? Quite simply, truth is what God says on any subject. It's what God says on any subject. And this comes first. So we must first start with what God says. Any decision that we make, any direction we go in life, we start with what God says. Do we naturally do that? Uh-uh. Not, in the, not even in the church do we do that. We, we often start with what man says. And we end up with the truth because man fails and we kind of stumble toward God's truth. We need to start with what God says. God's truth. Now, his truth is not going to help you unless you know it. Where do you go to know God's truth? You open the scripture. You look at his word and you read his truth in the word of God. Truth, just by the fact that it exists, is not going to do you any good because you don't know it yet. We like to say what? And the truth shall. That's right. You see, you all know it. And lost people say that all the the whole world says that and the truth shall set you free and it's usually said in in the connotation of honesty you know just be honest if you're honest you have freedom that's not what it's talking about truth is what god says the whole context of and the truth shall set you free is jesus says abide in my word and you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free this is known truth Okay, you got to know it for it to have an impact on your life. Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. The slaves in Texas were not told about that proclamation until 1865, meaning they operated as slaves, though they had a legal right to freedom. 
they did not exercise that right because they were not aware that the proclamation had been made. Are you walking in known freedom today? So you got to have the truth. When you have the truth, the truth relates to the very next component of armor, which is the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Paul says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is the connection between truth and righteousness? When you have the truth, you have a standard. It's a standard of right and wrong. When you have a standard of right and wrong, you can make right decisions. You can live righteously. And that is by design. Okay? You need the truth in order to live righteously and, 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 and follow the path that you need to follow. One of my favorite movies is Apollo 13. Apollo 13, right? Some of you are like, dude, you're on a real Tom Hanks kick today, aren't you? I guess I am. Apollo 13, you know the story. In the 13th hour of the 13th day of the 13th Apollo mission, what happens? Boom, right? There's an explosion. Oxygen tank is ruptured. And now the mission for these astronauts has changed. No longer are they going to be able to land on the surface of the moon. Now the mission is we got to get these astronauts home safely. That's the mission. And so they have a strategy. We're going we're gonna to use the moon's gravity. We're going to loop that craft around the moon. When it comes around the other side, we're going to send them back toward Earth. They're going to fire their engines one more time. And on that trajectory, they will come safely home. But they need to have the right coordinates. And there's a problem. They've lost their service module and that was their source of power. So they cannot spare the power to crank up the computer for the navigation. So they have no guarantee that they're going to be on the right trajectory when they fire those engines. Which means they might very easily skip the Earth's orbit and fly off into space and be lost forever. And so how are they going to navigate on the, once they get on the other side of the moon? Well, ship captains for years for centuries, have navigated by the stars, right? Well, they're surrounded by stars. All they got to do is look out the window. There's plenty of stars. There's another problem. That explosion has engulfed the craft in vapor and in debris. So now there are little particles out there that are lit by the sun that are glowing, and they are indistinguishable from the stars. They can't tell what's a star and what's debris. And isn't that just like life? We try to navigate through life and try to use philosophies that, are, that seem good. They're man-made, and, and there is some truth to them, okay? So they're generally pretty good to go by, some, some psychology, some things out there. But mixed in with all that is a lot of other man-made philosophy that is absolutely no good. It's all lies. It's false. It seems right to a man, but in the end leads only to death, Commander Jim Lovell says, uh, Houston, all we need to navigate is a fixed point in space. Is that, is that not correct? They say, yeah, Jim, that's correct. He goes, well, I think, we, uh, I think we've got one. He looks in the window. There's the earth. It's unmistakable. He says, fellas, if we keep the earth in the window, we can fly right and we can make it home. Folks, that's what truth is. You need truth central in your life so that you can righteously live and you can go as you are intended to go. And this righteous living is beneficial for you. It's the breastplate of righteousness. What does a breastplate do? It protects what? It protects your heart. And in your notes, living according to your righteous identity protects your heart. Satan wants to come after your heart. And he will attack your marriage to do it, right? He will get you uh, into uh, rationalizing 
leaving your spouse on unbiblical grounds, thinking you'll be happy when you won't. He can get Christian singles duped into thinking that they can enter into a marital relationship with an unbeliever and there be no negative backlash about that for them. I have singles come to me because I deal with young adults and some of them will come to me. Hey, Pastor Scott, I really want to get married. Oh, that's great. Well, so is the other person a believer? Well, not yet. When did you stop living by truth? We got to make our decisions based on truth. That's our compass right there. And as we move forward with our heart protected, we put on the shoes of the preparation of the gospel of peace. He says, and as shoes for your feet, verse 15, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Your position in your notes, your position in Christ gives you sure footing in life. You need sure footing. The Roman soldier's shoes had spikes on the bottom so they wouldn't stumble in battle. Let me ask you, does footwear make a difference in your performance? Yeah, just, just ask Zion Williamson. Anybody, you know, Zion Williamson, uh, small forward, power forward for Duke University, best player in the NCAA this year. He's going to go number one in the draft. Uh, no contest, right? The other night, big game against UNC. That's a rivalry, Duke-UNC. Zion, he's coming in. He's got the ball. He plants his foot, and there's a malfunction. His foot blows out the side of his shoe. Seam just completely opens up, and his whole foot comes out of his shoe. He buckles, his knee is sprained, injured, he goes down, has to leave the game, doesn't come back. Wow. Footwear makes a difference. Now, he's going to be okay. He'll still, he'll still come back and he'll, you know, do well in the tournament and all that stuff. I'm not sure Nike's going to be okay, you know, because that's kind of a PR nightmare. Biggest player in the NCAA is wearing your shoe and it blows out on him and it's in a big rivalry game, televised 30 seconds into the game. Oh, and by the way, there's a guy in the crowd that watches it and is caught on a viral video and it's a guy named Barack Obama and he reacts to it and he says, his uh, shoe broke. <laughs> That's a PR nightmare. Footwear makes a big difference, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And what is this footwear? He, Paul says it's the readiness of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. What peace do you have? It's your position in Christ. That's what gives you peace as you walk. There was a wealthy art collector. He requisitioned an, a, a work of art for his home. And he said, I want the artist to, to paint a scene depicting peace. Artist worked hard on it, brought it to the collector, unveiled it. It was nothing like the collector thought it was going to be. He was expecting some kind of a pastoral scene, maybe, maybe a shepherd, a little flock, sunset, some happy little clouds. I don't know. It was nothing like that. Instead, he gets torrential rains. He gets lightning flashing across the sky. He's got gushing waterfalls hurtling off a cliffside, jostling rocks out of place, and everything's falling down and crumbling into the swirling uh, maelstrom of chaos. The collector's like, what, 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 what am I looking at here? This isn't peace. And then he saw it. And right in the middle of that painting... Just behind that waterfall, in the cleft of the rock, is a little nest. And in the nest is a songbird, completely unfazed by the chaos unfolding around him, just singing away. That's you. 
that is biblical peace. Not because everything around you is fine, but because everything around you is not fine. And yet you are, because of your position, you are tucked in the cleft of the rock of ages. Amen? That's good to know. And if we know that, we can walk. What are shoes for? These shoes are made for walking. We got to keep walking forward. That's what they're for. And as we walk, we take up the shield of faith. That's your next component of armor. Verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. All right? And this is in your notes. Trust in God's character, timing, and promises allows me to move forward despite being under attack. As you walk forward, you are doing so because God has said this is the way that you should go. And faith is believing that what God says is true. Faith is when something does not seem so, it's acting as though it is so because God says so. That's faith. Faith enables us to move forward. Roman soldier had a shield, big curved shield. It was nearly body length. Why do you have this? Because his enemy, as they're walk, walking forward, as they're marching forward, the enemy would, would let these arrows fly and they would rain down on the soldiers. And because of the length and the shape and the size of these shields, they could hold them up and still advance without fear of being struck by that arrow. It would just glance right off of that shield. And are these normal arrows that we face? What does it say? It says, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Arrows are bad enough. When you dip the tip of that arrow in oil and you light that bad boy and you let that sucker go, you're not looking to take out one guy. You're looking to take out a house. You're looking to take out a field. You're looking at, uh, to take out a wagon, you know? And the enemy knows you can't fight me and put out a fire at the same time. But we don't need to worry about that because we've got a shield that extinguishes flaming arrows and we walk in faith because we're moving forward and this is what God wants he wants us to move forward without fear but with faith we often ask God to move God when are you going to move when are you going to move sometimes God's saying when are you going to move all throughout scripture he tells people to move Moses tell the people to move uh, there's a red sea there I know that tell the people to move and they start walking red sea Parts. Moses, you better get your hands up. These Amalekites are slaughtering your people. Get your hands up. Hold that rod out. When Moses holds the rod out, they're victorious over the Amalekites. Joshua, tell the people to march around the city six times, once for every day for six days. On the seventh day, seven times. You march around the city. You do that. What happens? They win the city. They have the victory. We wait on God, God waits on us. We say, God, move. He says, you move in faith. Move in faith. Not because it depends on us, because we're depending on him as we walk. And as we do so, we wear the helmet of salvation. He says, take the helmet of salvation. Now, what does a helmet cover? Covers your head. What does your head cover? Hopefully there's a brain in there, right? That's what a helmet's for. It's to protect your brain, right? And uh, in your notes... What, what, what helmet is this? The helmet of salvation, right? So when we remember our deliverance, we won't surrender our minds to the enemy. Where's the battle begin? 
begins right here. Begins in the mind. You're at the gym. You're on the treadmill. You're on the bike. You're on the Stairmaster, whatever it is. You're just, you're just doing your thing. You're minding your own business. You're just trying to lose some calories, right? And into your field of vision, as you look straight ahead, here comes a member of the opposite sex. They are dressed provocatively. They are attractive. Now, you didn't ask them to enter your field of vision, but they have. And now they walk out of your field of vision, and you're still looking straight ahead. There's your enemy right there in your ear, and he says, hey, that looked pretty good. You know, uh, they're, they're just right over there. Why don't you, uh, you take another look? And you're just doing your thing, and you, you contemplate it. Oh, my gosh, you're thinking about looking, aren't you? Oh, you dog, you dirty sinner. I, well, you've already sinned in your heart. I mean, isn't that what your Bible says? You know, you might as well just take a look. And so you do. And then your enemy says, wow, you did it, didn't you? You just lusted. Oh, my gosh. God must be so disappointed in you. Well, you know what this just goes to show? You're, you're unhappy in your marriage. You're not getting what you need. You owe it to yourself. Why don't you go and strike up a conversation? Maybe you do. And that conversation leads to a laugh. And that laugh leads to further interaction. And it builds and it builds and it builds. And finally, an affair blooms. And Satan's won the first battle. Where did that battle begin? It began in the mind. What did you need to do? You needed to put on the helmet of salvation so that you would remember that you have already been delivered from the nonsense that your enemy was selling you that you are not hardwired to fail and you can rebuke that because you are by putting that helmet on you are bringing your thinking into line with what God says about you and who God says you are we need to remember who we are. Hmm. And as we do that, we can pick up the sword of the Spirit. Now, this is the real devil slayer right here. Paul says the sword of the Spirit, which is what? Which is the Word of God. In your notes, Scripture is both an offensive and defensive weapon. This is the only component of the armor that's offensive right here. Okay? Why? Well, maybe because if you got the rest of the armor, this is all you need. Whose sword is it? It's the sword of the Spirit, right? This is the Holy Spirit's only weapon. This is all he uses. I get so sick and tired of Christians trying to put different things in the hands of the Holy Spirit and trying to use and ask the Holy Spirit to do things in ways that the Holy Spirit should not be used and, and things that he, you should not ask the Holy Spirit to do. There is no new revelation. It's in Scripture. The Holy Spirit uses a sword that is the Word of God. It's the scripture. Now, when Jesus or when, when Paul uses that phrase, the word of God, for word, the Greek words that he could have used there are graphe, which means physical writing. That's not what he uses. Uh, logos, which is the content of that writing. That's not what he uses. Uh, or, or there's the word he actually uses, which is rhema. Rhema. That's utterance. That's utterance. How is the sword used? It's used offensively in battle. What are we supposed to do when we are engaging our enemy in an offensive way? We are to utter the truth of the scripture. 
You ever have a Bible study with the devil? Jesus did. Matthew 4, Luke 4, he's out in the wilderness. What's he doing out there? He's being tempted, isn't he? He's led out there to be tempted. And he's fasting. He's fasting for 40 days. And Satan comes to him. He goes, you must be famished. And he tempts him with lust of the flesh. And he says, you know, if you're hungry, you can always turn these stones to bread. How does Jesus respond? He says, it is written, man does not live by bread alone. Satan changes his strategy. He says, I'm going to tempt this guy with pride. He says, you know, you say you're the son of God. Prove it. Throw yourself down. If you're the son of God, you won't be hurt. Jesus says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Strike two. He changes his strategy one more time, tries to tempt Jesus with possessions, shows him all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, I'm going to give you all of this if you will just bow down and worship me. Jesus says, read my lips. It is written, you shall worship the Lord and him only shall you serve. Strike three. The next verse says, then the devil left he left him. He said, I don't know if I could do that. Give it a shot. Satan hates scripture. You throw the promises of the word of God at the devil and you see what happens. You see if he won't leave you alone. If he won't give you a reprieve. You know why? Because he can't handle the truth. To quote another movie that doesn't star Tom Hanks. All right. You got the armor. Now what do you do? You gotta take up your watch. We can be fearless about our watch. The believer must be watchful. Paul says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. A good soldier is alert and on the watch and in communication with their commanding officer. From the field, they, they, they communicate, they report in, they receive commendation, they, they make a petition for themselves, for those around them in the field. And in your notes, prayer keeps the believer sharp. How are we to pray? Paul says pray at all times. That's constantly. He says keep alert with all perseverance. That's urgently. That's diligently. He says making supplication for all the saints and also for me. That's specifically. We can pray specifically. You can pray in general. You can pray for the world. You can pray for all the lost people to come to faith in Christ. Uh, you can pray for God's will to be done in a general sense. But by all means, pray specifically so that God can answer specifically and bring glory to himself. That's what he wants. And the end of this is what Paul says, that I may open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. He says boldly twice. We might use the word fearlessly as I ought to speak. This is a picture of a soldier that God gives to Paul. As he's in chains, he looks up, he sees a soldier. God says, write this down for the church. But it's not merely a soldier that we're to see ourselves as. Because in, in, in your notes, God's picture of the believer is not just as a soldier, but a victorious one. A victorious one. Because the battles do get hard 
they do rage, but folks, the war's already won. And you, my friend, need to see yourself as marching in an army, carrying a banner of a kingdom that never ends. Amen? That's right. That's right. Because he's got the victory. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the blessings of being called by your name and that you have won it. You have won it, God. But we are here on this earth and we, we must run this race until we arrive in your presence. And we just pray, God, that you'll be with us. Would you bless everybody in this room, all the believers here today, would you help them to know who they are in Christ Jesus? Give them power, give them victory, give them might, give them fearlessness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.